Good morning. This morning at St. Collins, we're thinking about the farmer getting a wife. You'd have to say we're pretty confused around marriage these days. On the one hand, it doesn't really matter much. Most young couples and older couples really just move in together and uh, get on with their lives. And at some point, some of them decide to get married and others decide not to. Uh, in fact, many of you have probably been caught up in a sort of situation we've been caught up where my sister, who has three boys, all of whom have had long-term partners, none of whom were married, uh, we suddenly got an invitation in the mail inviting us to a very elaborate wedding event that involved going to the country for a weekend uh, for the grand get-together in marriage. Uh, and it turned out at the same time it was announced that they were having a baby, so it seemed like the fact that they were going to have a baby became the trigger for making a more formal commitment in holy matrimony. At the same time, we're all aware of the grief and tension of the past two years as friends and family have had to defer or put on hold their wedding celebrations. In fact, uh, that for the next two weekends, Karen and I were meant to be going to weddings, both of which been, have been deferred. While we're seemingly ambivalent about marriage, you may recall that way back in 2017, when we had the same-sex survey, uh, that there was enormous uh, debate and contention and uh, all sorts of stuff going on in relation to the issue of the marriage of, marriage of same-sex people. And it seemed a little bit ironic in one sense that we were having such a big fuss about marriage when so many people were seemingly so ambivalent about the idea of getting married. You may recall that uh, the Prime Minister at the time was Julia Gillard, uh, and she herself was in a long-term partnership. They weren't married, which was contentious at the time as for her as a prime minister. And she was content, uh, ambivalent about the same-sex survey because of her own views on uh, the issue of marriage, which kind of was profoundly ironic because she was very pro-gay. So it was uh, full of interesting twists and turns. Well, at the same time, we also know that we live in an area where increasing numbers of people are single, some by choice and many others because they've never had the option and next month I'm going to be preaching on Does God Hate Gays? And there are really big issues for us as a faith community and for all churches around the issue of how we welcome and include same-sex attractive people and let, let it live in a way that is faithful to um, our understanding and reading of scripture. Well, all of that brings us to Ruth chapter four and in chapter four, four the farmer gets the wife. It's the happy ending we're all hoping for. I wonder whether you've ever pondered why the book is called Ruth. Chapter one is focused on Naomi and her need to get back home, a widow with limited options. Chapter two is focused on Ruth and her steps of faith as she meets Boaz, gleaning in the fields. And chapters three and four are focused on Boaz and to a lesser extent, Naomi. The book could easily have been called the book of Naomi or the book of Boaz. It's also surprising it's in the Bible at all. It, it is a lovely story, but in a sense, what's it doing here? Now, in one sense, you could suggest it's all because of the royal line of David. And as we've just heard in the reading, the book finishes with a genealogy where we meet, we see that Boaz was the father of Obed, and then Obed, the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. Yet that would be unfair, as the book follows the story of three faithful people and the outworking of God's plan and purpose in their lives. Ruth is honored by being listed in Matthew's genealogy. Her story is significant in itself, and yet also important in the overall working, outworking of God's plan and purpose. There are only two books of the Bible named after women, and given the patriarchal nature of the ancient world, that in itself was pretty amazing. Well, at the end of chapter three, Naomi and Ruth await the outcomes of their plan 
to get Boaz to act as the kinsman redeemer and to seek to make Ruth his wife. As Peter uh, carefully explained last week, this had to happen within the framework of the Levitical law for the people of Israel. Ruth says in uh, verse 18, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Now, I don't know about you, but I think one of the hardest things to do is to wait and trust. If you're like me, you're much more comfortable being in charge and in control. Poor Ruth has taken these risky actions and she has no part in the practicalities and is literally stuck at home waiting to see what happens. All she can do is pray and trust. In fact, in chapter 4, she doesn't really appear directly, even though huge decisions are being made about her life and her future. Ruth, of course, had her own hopes and expectations. Boaz had outlined what he intended to do. There was another person who, God, who would have, could make a claim on her as the kinsman redeemer. He would allow him to act first, and if he didn't take up the, action, the option, then as Boaz said, if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. That's pretty exciting, but the outcome wasn't in any way guaranteed. I wonder with how you are with praying and trusting, with stopping and relying on God when you can do nothing other than to pray. In the story before us, it's all happening very fast. Often in our lives, it can be much slower and trusting God can be an ongoing challenge. What about your unbelieving children or grandchildren? What about your own particular personal health challenges? What about employment or housing issues or business decisions that you're in the midst of or hoping will be resolved in some way? You could argue that there's nothing better than to be in a position whereby you are trusting God and relying upon his goodness. Trusting he wants the best for you, believing that even though it is slow and he is in control, you could argue that, but for that, but for most of us, I think in reality we find this hard to live out. So Ruth is at home with Naomi and Boaz, and as Boaz springs into action. Now you could argue, and people have done this, that this is all classic uh, patriarchal stuff. The wife is stuck at home, powerless, and the man goes off to sort it all out. You could argue that, and from a Western and contemporary eye, it all seems pretty strange. The reality is that there are many contexts in our world today where these things are still being acted out, where the decisions about the future of marriage of a woman is being decided by the men, and the women just have to go along with what they've decided. Women are largely powerless in those contexts and often voiceless. In his book, Finally Feminist, John Stackhouse argues that when we live in a non-patriarchal context like we, are, we do, the Bible is not asking us to live in such a way as we to perpetuate patriarchy. Sadly, some elements of today's church are so kind of caught up in their uh, pursuit of what's called complementarianism in terms of marital and church relations in relation to women and leadership, that they unwittingly seemingly to su support the perpetuation of patriarchy. For example, there's a fairly noteworthy preacher who I won't say who it is, who's suggested that if you were to hop into a bus being uh, driven by a woman, you should get off because you would therefore uh, be coming under her leadership or headship. I've always said the thing that, that undermines a lot of teaching on complementarianism is that it, the, the people who have these views often have marriages that look pretty similar to my marriage, uh, and I don't claim to be a complementarian. 
Well, getting back to Ruth and Naomi, you'd have to say that even though they don't call the shots, that Ruth and Naomi have been pretty active in negotiating a way forward. And they've been very bold and active in making things happen. Well, Boaz goes to town, to town great, so he could connect with the guardian redeemer when he came along. In ancient times, decisions and agreements took place in the public square. Boaz meets the man and he draws in 10 elders to be a part of the decision-making process. <coughs> he puts forward his proposal. Naomi has a piece of land that belonged to her husband, Elimelech. We have no other information about this land. Maybe it was dormant from when they had gone away. Maybe it was being farmed by others. Under Levitical law, uh, the next of kin was to be given the first option to buy it. The agreement had to be done in the presence of witnesses. The man says he will redeem it. Boaz then adds another dimension to the sale which he has concealed up until now. In verse 5, it says, on, that, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. If he buys the land, he gets it, but he also gets the widow and the daughter-in-law as well. Suddenly, this simple deal has got a lot more complicated and, to put it bluntly, expensive. Even more than that, he had the further obligation to perpetuate the family name by producing a male heir. <coughs> the man quickly withdraws his offer and this frees up Boaz to make the purchase. It is formalised with the exchange of a thong and in the presence of the elders. Boaz makes a grand speech in verses 9 to 10. He says, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilon, Kilion and Marlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead and with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. The elders seal the deal and there is a sort of community celebration minus the bride and the mother-in-law. The farmer gets his wife and in God's kindness, Ruth falls pregnant and bears a son who they name Obed. Obed means servant, literally servant of the Lord. I'll let you draw it, whatever way you look at it, this is a great story. And as we've touched on, it's an important story in its own right. Part of the joy of being a Christian, part of the joy of it being a part of the canon of scripture is that it validates the seemingly ordinary lives that we all live. Naomi, Ruth and Boaz faced regular human dilemmas and have to trust God to overrule, to guide and to provide. Just reflect on the challenges that each of them faced. Naomi, impoverished, widowed, a refugee, a single mother, limited options, but also shrewd, a great operator, someone who knew the law and worked within it, someone who had maybe struggled to trust God, but still showed an incredible sense of dependence. What about, uh, what about uh, Ruth? She was an outsider, a widow, childless, totally dependent, a convert to the faith, hard worker, obedient, and even when it was seemingly very risky, faithful and trusting. And what about Boaz? Probably a bachelor, probably an older man, seemingly wealthy and unfulfilled, generous, faithful, good operator, uses the law for good outcomes, trusting and faithful. And as well as that, they're not passive participants. This isn't a recipe for letting go and letting God. Each of them in their own way are actively deciding and acting to play their part in the unfolding, as it turns out, of God's will for themselves 
and for others. And finally, we see that their very personal story is part of a much bigger story. When the people blessed Boaz in securing the land and the hand of Ruth in marriage, this is what they say. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathath and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. As it turns out, these were prophetic words. Boaz and Ruth are blessed with a child, Obed. And the book finishes with the genealogy of the family line of Perez. Salmon, the father, Salmon rather, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. As we know in Matthew's gospel, he starts with the genealogy of Jesus and in it, both Ruth and Boaz are mentioned as well as Obed. The family line of Jesus came from Jesse and from David. None of us are featured in biblical genealogies and we have no idea what we have, that we've been a part of uh, anything that might seemingly be as significant uh, in the kingdom of God as this particular story. There are billions of small stories that add up to one big story and we get to be a part of that. And I think that's part of what gives our lives meaning if we're people of faith, that somehow our small contributions to God's kingdom add up to the overall big picture of the growth of God's kingdom and we get to play our part. Well, for me, the open-ended commitment of Ruth in chapter one is one of the key moments in the big story of this book. In chapter one, verses 16, she said, wherever you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Now, most of us today live lives of relative privilege. So we may have never had to make such an open-ended commitment because we probably have never been as destitute and as desperate as Ruth and Naomi were. And you could suggest that for Ruth, she had no choice than to cling to Naomi because what else was she going to do? But on the other hand, for each of us as people who have committed our lives to the Lord, there has, to be a certain, there has been a certain open-endedness uh, to the faith commitment that we've made to where we live and what we do. When Karen and I got married way back in 1986, we had no idea we'd end up in Melbourne. We had no idea we'd end up in the places that we've been to. And we never knew, had no idea how it would all pan out. It's been a great venture and that's been part of entrusting ourselves to the Lord and following his leading. And I would imagine that's part of your story as well. <clears throat> and in chapter two, verse 12, Boaz says to Ruth, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz's words are a prophetic word for Ruth, and they're equally true, I think, for each of us. We too live under the wings of our Lord, and we too can know his refuge. So whatever you're facing at present, it could be all sorts of stuff that's seemingly not all that significant from a worldly point of view, but is incredibly important to you, or it could be something that's really big. Uh, it doesn't really matter. The encouragement here is to seek God's refuge and to seek his help. 